This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. So when they go without a lawyer, they may come right with maybe some basic evidence, right? And, and some explanation as to why they have a defense. But unless they can really articulate that defense and assuming they also are lucky enough to get a judge who is patient and is willing to listen to them, they will likely still end up getting evicted. Renters can have a really hard time asserting their rights. It feels like landlords hold all of the power. Power over how much you pay and whether you get to stay. Now, I've owned my home for 20 years, but I've been recently reminded of that renter's vulnerability because my son is renting his first apartment. And even though he likes the place, it's been a hassle. Literally no cooking gas for nine months. Totally disinterested management company. And the recent news that rent will increase by 50% next year. Maybe he's being punished for complaining about the cooking gas. Maybe it's just a cash grab in a booming rental market. For my son, who is young and flexible, he'll just move. A bad landlord relationship doesn't threaten his sense of stability, in part because our house will always be there for safe shelter if he needs it. Leaving this apartment is a hassle, but it is not a catastrophe. So when we think about why tenants need lawyers in eviction court, I want you to stop thinking about your kid's first apartment or your first apartment. Those things that you put up with when you rented in college or law school, the things that you could manage because it felt temporary and you believed you had options. Imagine you didn't have options. I want you to imagine my clients at Legal Aid in Chicago an elderly couple on a fixed income who had lived in the same apartment with a month-to-month lease for over 35 years. But when a new owner bought the building, they were given 30 days notice to move. Or my client in subsidized housing, whose bedroom ceiling caved in, and by that, I mean she could see the sky from her bedroom. The landlord just refused to repair it for months, but also tried to get her kicked out of the subsidy program because she complained. Or my client who is being charged for the gas service for her entire six-unit building. So she withheld some rent. When the landlord took her to eviction court, their attorney claimed her cooking gas bill was high because, quote, these poor people have too many kids. Or the management company that wanted all the current tenants to leave. So they created a false notice from the city claiming the building had been condemned. And they posted that fake notice on every apartment door. None of those clients, none of them, had the income, the savings, the flexibility to just pick up and move somewhere else when it all became too much. For them, these landlord problems weren't a hassle. They were a catastrophe. Welcome to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute, in which lawyers and clients talk candidly about their pro bono experiences. I'm your host, Alicia Aiken, and for 15 years, I was a legal services attorney in Chicago. Now, I'm a principal at Danu Center for Strategic Advocacy, 
a national organization supporting advocates and mission-based organizations in their own pursuit of social justice. I'm also a faculty fellow at PLI, where I get to work on special projects like this podcast. Since I left Legal Aid, I know the eviction pressures on low-income folks have gotten even more intense. Because I've been out of that direct client work for a while, I wanted to talk with someone who is on the ground right now. And I was particularly happy to find out that a longtime friend and colleague of mine, Lorraine Lopez, is practicing in Los Angeles and is also leading a pro bono training on eviction defense for PLI. My name is Lorraine Lopez. I currently work with Western Center on Law and Poverty. Um, Right now, I'm a senior attorney in our housing litigation team. And I've been at Western Center for about six months now. Congratulations. Thank you. And so uh, when when the Western Center on Poverty Law says housing litigation, like what what's covered by that? So it covers complex and impact litigation related to various housing issues. Um, what I focus on is a lot of landlord tenants, housing stability and displacement issues. And we're a statewide organization. So that means we provide support also to a lot of the legal services organizations here in um, California. One of the first things Lorraine did was reframe the entire topic of our discussion. I've always called it eviction defense or housing law. But Lorraine thinks very carefully about how she describes the work she is doing for clients. I'm more focused now on creating rules and things that can help out folks who are in unlawful detainer court, right? I'm trying to defend folks. Mm. But um, to just kind of be able to turn around and say, hey, you get to continue living in your home because it it is their home. Like, that's the other thing I think I want people to understand is we always use the terminology, your home. We're going to keep you in your home. We're going to fight to keep you in your home. Because, yes, it is an apartment in most cases, right? It is something that is rented and is meant to be temporary. But for many folks, it becomes their permanent home. So I know from your bio that you have actually lived experience in subsidized housing. So I'm wondering if you could talk about um, sort of from that perspective and how that experience growing up might have drawn you into doing this work for people. Yeah, I'm a Chicago native and, you know, I I rented all of my life. We never had a home growing up and and that we didn't own property. Um, So I experienced a lot of housing instability when I was um, a child. Um, A lot of late night move outs, which, you know, at the time I didn't really understand. Um, You know, when you're six years old and suddenly you're packing up all your stuff so you can be out of somewhere by midnight. Um, Yeah. You know, it's it's hard to understand. But, you know, as you grow up, you're like, oh, that's what that mm-hmm. was. But when I was in high school, um, I was fortunate enough that um, my mother qualified for a public housing program in Chicago called the Scattered Sites Program. Um, and that program did place uh, low-income families in what they called opportunity neighborhoods. So many neighborhoods that weren't economically depressed, where there were job opportunities, where there were good schools. And that finally provided us some level of stability. And by that time, my mom had become disabled, so she couldn't work anymore. So it had become very scary as far as not knowing, you know, where your next meal is going to come from, not knowing if this is the month that we have to move because the landlord is finally, you know, exhausted their patience um, with your mom. And the thing is, you know, experiencing that growing up, when we talk about, right, the instability that it creates for children and the disruption is it forces children to grow up very quickly Mm -hmm. and to really take on very adult problems. And it 
it really does kind of rob you of your childhood a little bit. They shouldn't be worried about, you know, how is mom going to pay the bills this month or are we going to be evicted tomorrow? Um, And I hear those stories a lot more with clients where, you know, they'll have kids that are 12, 13, 14, 15, and they'll be like, you know, my son is really anxious and getting depressed and is like acting out in school because he doesn't know where we're going to live tomorrow. And he's really freaked out about this eviction case. So it has a really huge impact on the family. And it's it's not just about the tenant, you know, the person who's named in the lawsuit. It affects the entire family. But yeah, but honestly, if it weren't for us having that stability and that that became my home. Mm-hmm. Um, it's what I identified as my home and, until, you know, my mother got to pass away there, you know, in 2014. I, I honestly miss it now that she's gone. And it, it's even though it was an apartment and we made it our home, it, it becomes a big piece of you. And um, I don't know that I would have gone down this path or even had the opportunity to go down this path had we not had that housing stability. It's such a incredible feeling to have that sense of home, which is why I'm so close to this work. And it really hits me. And um, I feel like it's going to come out in the interview, so we might as well cover it now. Like, how do you and I know each other? That's awesome. So let's see. It's been almost 20 years. (laughs) Yes, it's been that long. When Alicia Aiken took a chance on a clueless 1L from Tulane University. (laughs) wanted to volunteer at Legal Systems Foundation in Chicago. And you all introduced me into the wonderful world of local legal aid offices and um, housing in particular. And that's where my interest on this career path really started um, and was cemented. I'm going to ask a question that I think may be on the mind of lawyers who aren't in the legal uh, aid field and are thinking, what kind of pro bono might I do? Like, I think people might think, eh, eviction. I mean, if you don't pay your rent, your landlord's going to take you to court. If you paid your rent, you're fine. If you didn't pay your rent, you'll get kicked out. Move to a new place, start over. If you're a good tenant, you don't have to worry about eviction court. Is that true? Not at all. (laughs) You know, just like any litigation, unlawful detainer defense can be very complex. Yes, on the surface, it seems like very black and white, but it normally it really isn't. So, yes, it may present as a non-payment case, but then you'll find out, you know, the landlord's been continually harassing the tenant and they withheld their rent because they were hoping the harassing behavior would stop. Or, you know, for the different jurisdictions around the United States that have rent control laws, We have a lot of landlords who try different tactics to kind of cut those tenancies short so that they can get market rate rents once that person moves out. So they're kind of gambling that they can pressure someone to move out who is probably paying way below market rent for whatever area they're living in. And and nowadays what I see is happening, too, is um, we have a lot of seniors and rents are outpacing their um, public benefits. Right. And they're outpacing their um, fixed income. So. Folks who may have been in their apartments for 20, 30 years with no problem paying the rent, right? Um, just can't afford it anymore. Cost of living is getting way too high. Cost of health care is getting high. And it just kind of depends on the economic situation. Things change every couple of years, and we see different issues based on what's going on in, in our country right now. So can you can you share with us a story of what can happen to a tenant if they go to court and you know, they they have a defense. What can happen to folks when they go to landlord-tenant court or eviction court without a lawyer? 
So when they go without a lawyer, they may come right with maybe some basic evidence, right? And, and some explanation as to why they have a defense. But unless they can really articulate that defense, and assuming they also are lucky enough to get a judge who is patient and is willing to listen to them, they will likely still end up getting evicted. Um, and that happens because in most states, eviction proceedings are considered to be summary proceedings. So they move very quickly. Um, you're very often in courts that have 20, 30 cases on their morning docket, and a judge is trying to clear those out as soon as possible. It almost feels like being, you know, in like traffic court or something, right, where you're just kind of moving things along. And over the years, um, you know, eviction defenses is a pretty new practice. There haven't traditionally been lawyers defending tenants. So it became very routine to just kind of clear these cases, not have any sort of defense presented, not have an attorney on the other side. Lorraine is so right about that imbalance between the landlords and the tenants. A 2017 analysis in Washington, D.C. looked at the 33,000 eviction cases filed in a year. 90% of the landlords had lawyers, only 10% of the tenants did. And we might ask, well, what difference exactly does it make for tenants to have full representation from a lawyer? When Harvard researchers studied that question in the Boston area in 2010, they found a huge difference in outcomes. 75% of tenants without lawyers had a judgment for possession entered against them. But for those with lawyers, only 17% had a judgment. And there was also a significant impact on ability to stay in their home. Two-thirds of those with lawyers stayed in possession of their home, compared to only one-third of those without lawyers. So I got Lorraine to describe for me what are the patterns she sees in eviction courts when they are full of landlords' attorneys and unrepresented tenants. You know, landlords' attorneys were very used to doing, you know, what you call prove-ups, right? Just going, so-and-so didn't pay the rent, think of my judgment. Um, and it just became a very easy practice to just continually displace people that way. Even if you show up and you have like a you know cognizable defense, if you don't have a judge that has the patience for it, or if you can't articulate it correctly, and most people don't because they're super emotional once they get there, they're facing the loss of their home, which can mean losing their jobs too, right? If they have to move far away from where they're employed. Um, it could mean that this is a family that's doubled up already because they can't afford rent, right? And now you're facing kind of a breakup of the family and, and whatever economic stability they have. So, you know, it's very emotional and it's hard for folks and to actually, you know, present their defenses and, and be successful in doing that. Um, and a lot of it's luck. I've definitely sat in court before with my own clients and watched two or three tenants who are unrepresented go before me and get judgments against them, even though I'm sitting there listening to their story. And I was like, but that's a defense. Like they paid the rent or they did the thing. Right. And it's like, no, why is this happening? And you see it every day. hundred percent. I mean, I would watch the same thing in Chicago, right? There was a um, court study. It might've been 20 years ago, but I don't think anything has changed. It found the average length of an eviction trial in Chicago was two minutes. Oh. <laughs> I, I don't know if you're seeing something similar in Los Angeles. Yeah, I actually, um, when I started practicing out here, um, there was a, a group of attorneys that really started pushing jury trials, which was unheard of, apparently in LA County. But yeah, folks would show up for their, you know, trial date, and they'd be up there, you know, five, 10 minutes, 30, if they're lucky, because maybe the judge is 
interested in the case, right? And wants to hear more, is asking a ton of questions. But yeah, people would be out like that. And, you know, I would routinely get objections from counsel and I'd be like, oh, well, this is going to be a two or three day jury trial. And they'd be like, this is an eviction case. It should be done in one day. And it's like, that's not how jury trials work. (laughs) Speaking of jury trials, that is the great white whale of litigation experience. The thing so many trial attorneys are looking for. And it turns out Pro bono attorneys can get great experience and make an important impact on someone's life by taking on jury trials for tenants. I asked Lorraine to tell me about a memorable jury trial that she handled in Los Angeles. I have a a really great story, and it was one of of my last jury trials when I worked at this office. It was a reasonable accommodation issue, and my client happened to have three emotional support animals. Now, she was being evicted because the landlord found one of her emotional support animals to be threatening. And in this case, it happened to be a boxer dog. She was very gentle giant, and she was also a senior. The the (laughs) dog or the client? The dog! My client was also a senior. But, but, um, you know, and I'm not a dog person. I'm a cat person. And when I first went, you know, I also have right my own little implicit biases about dogs. But when I went to go visit her, because I was like, I want to see this this ferocious dog, right? I show up to her unit. Dog is sitting at the at the door, does nothing. <laughs> I knock, not even a, not a bark, not a growl, not even an acknowledgement. One of the most gentlest dogs I've ever seen and the property manager saying, your dog is always barking. We can't come to your unit. I can't even like post notices without your dog scaring, you know, the living daylights out of me. We need you to remove your dogs. And she was freaking out because these are her emotional support animals. She had a mental health disability. And these animals, I I spoke to her family, had actually helped a lot with um, quelling her anxieties, quelling her depression. They actually allowed her to work. And um, I kept trying to work with the landlord. I sent a reasonable accommodation letters. I sent numerous letters. They did not want to engage with us. Finally, it just, it got to the point where it's like, this is going to trial. And I did a jury trial. Um, they disputed that she was in fact disabled. Oh. They disputed that she needed this many emotional support animals. And English was not her first language. So she was speaking through an interpreter. I was like, okay, now I have to prove that she's disabled. So I've got to bring in this expert witness, right? Um, and these trials, they're fast, even though they're still jury trials. Um, I had estimated four to five days just because of the language issues, because I needed this expert to come in, also because I was familiar with opposing counsel. And the judge is like, no, this is an eviction case. You get three days. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do this in three days. And you get to introduce photographic evidence. You get to cross-examine. And it was just an amazing experience because at one point I actually had a, a, a the opposing counsel thought they had a gotcha moment and it was actually my gotcha moment because he violated that rule where you'd never ask a question where you don't know the answer. <laughs> so he was cross-examining um, the the licensed social worker that I had uh, called as our witness. And his question was, don't you think that three dogs is, is excessive? And this lady, without skipping a beat, on the stand goes, no, actually, I have five. 
Oops. <laughs> and it was great. It was so great. And I, I, in this practice, one of my favorite things is to watch juries and how they react. And they were like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, and you get, I mean, and think about it. This is a jury trial that you do in three days. Yeah. It was, yes, it's nerve wracking, right? But the exhilaration you get after, like I defended someone and we ended up getting a verdict in our favor. Um, she got to keep her three animals. In the apartment. In the apartment. Yes. So it's it's like I saved her housing. I saved her pets. I And, you know, and, and I, I don't want to sound grandiose, right, but this really meant had a huge impact on her life okay. because she was so scared of what would happen to her if she wasn't allowed not only to keep her animals, but if he, her and her family had to move. They had been living there for 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, um, she had her routine, which really helped keep keep her stable. And she was so like she actually didn't understand that we won at first. She's like, "What happened?" <laughs> yeah, I had to explain. I was like, "You? They said you can stay. You won." Yeah, yeah. And she's like, "Oh my god, this is so crazy! You're literally helping someone stay housed and saving of such an important resource for them." So that's a great outcome. But sometimes I worry if it's worth it. It's hard to imagine the tenant and the landlord will like each other much after a contentious trial like that. Might the landlord just lay in wait for any excuse to bring a new eviction? Is it worth that much energy and attorney time to keep someone in a bad landlord-tenant relationship? Much like my son will break up with his landlord, is there an argument we should just be helping clients like Lorraine's to move rather than fighting to stay. Lorraine talks about why just moving just isn't feasible for most low-income and subsidized tenants. And that's definitely a question I get a lot, especially during my early years when I was first engaging with pro bono, right? Folks would ask, like, well, why are you spending these resources? Why are you spending your time with these folks? It should be an easy case, right? They can just move. And the thing is, it is not that simple for most folks. Most folks are hanging on by a thread, right? And their housing might be the only thing that's actually stable in their lives. And it's the one thing they budgeted for, though any kind of unforeseen circumstance could have them on that brink of being unhoused. It's not as simple as just move somewhere else. And especially depending on where you live, and I think this is way more common in the United States now, is the cost of living in most metropolitan areas where there are jobs and services and, you know, healthcare and maybe family, right, who are a safety net as well, is expensive. So it doesn't become as easy as just replace your unit. Um, I used to have a lot of tenants that I represented um, in LA who were living in rent control places, had been there for years, great tenants, right? And this is like the first time they're facing eviction. So it's really hard to tell someone who's been paying like $500 a month in rent in a pretty nice you know, area of Los Angeles to be like, well, I'll just get up and move to some other place. Even when I had clients who were like, oh, just move, right? I don't want to deal with the eviction. I'll show them the comparable rents like within like a two mile radius, right? And it would be like double, triple what they're paying. And they'd be like, oh my God, like I can't, what am I going to do? I can't afford that. And it's like, yes. Yeah. So that's when you're telling me, I'll just go, I don't want to deal with this problem. What are, where are you going to go? To me, that's like, okay, I'm just setting you up to like end up in the streets or moving out of L.A. completely or, or doubling up with family members. So it really is not as easy as just picking up and going. And picking up and going, like I said, means sometimes 
moving really far away from your job and that's increased travel expenses, right? Or if you don't have a car, if you live in a city like New York, um, LA, if you move way too far away and you don't have transportation, that's it, you lose your job. Or you might try to keep it and because you're continuing late because the subway breaks down or you know your ride didn't come through that day, there goes your source of income. So it has a lot of impacts on other things that folks don't really think about how housing is interconnected with other aspects of people's lives. And what about um, if somebody does get an eviction, what does that do to their credit record and their ability to rent a new place? In most places, um, one, evictions do show up on your credit record. Um, and especially if there is a judgment against you, that, that shows up right as a financial ding on your credit record. But they also show up just as an eviction record in most cases. So a landlord who is running um, your Social Security, right, and is running your credit check is going to see that. And for most landlords, they don't ask questions. They don't say, well, what happened, you know. And, and they don't give you a chance to explain. They see that eviction and it's like, nope, you're an unfavorable tenant. You're unsavory. I don't want you. So when that happens, folks have very limited housing choices. They're either relegated to um, situations where they have to share housing, where you might have a landlord that's less likely to run a credit check. Um, you may be subject to landlords charging you crazy deposits, right? Security deposits and asking for two or three times the rent up front because they see you as a credit risk, right? Or, you know, you just end up being pretty much refused housing anywhere, and it's really difficult. All of these systemic problems for low-income renters, they disproportionately impact Black and Latinx communities more than white communities and women of color are even more impacted. That's because long histories of discrimination in employment and home ownership have left current generations more likely to be renters and homeowners and more likely to be low-income renters. And the newest data suggests COVID-19 is only widening the gap in access to sustainable housing. We'll link to resources in the show notes if you want to dig into the data for yourself. But in the words of one guest on the NPR show Fresh Air, we are in the middle of a housing crisis. Theoretically, we do have a solution to the need for stable, affordable housing. The U.S. has several different kinds of federally funded subsidized housing. The details of the different programs can get wonky pretty fast. So suffice it to say, When a tenant lives in subsidized housing, the family pays 30% of their income as rent. If your income goes down, your rent goes down and you don't get evicted. In fact, we've already talked about subsidized housing in this episode. That's the apartment that Lorraine's family got into. That was the program that gave her so much stability and a sense of home. So what about subsidized housing? Should lawyers be focusing their efforts on getting clients into subsidized housing? Does Lorraine see that as a solution in the current environment? And even if you're thinking, well, if someone's so low income, maybe they can get subsidized housing. Subsidized housing is so inaccessible. Most programs have really long waiting lists and also have some credit screening procedures. So if they see you as a financial risk or if you owe a debt to a landlord, they're also going to say, nope, sorry, you can't live here. Like, I know if somebody uh, qualifies for food stamps 
they get food stamps. And if somebody qualifies for Medicaid health insurance, they get Medicaid health insurance. If somebody qualifies for subsidized housing, do they always get subsidized housing? No. Um, Unlike those other programs, right, um, subsidized housing is not what we call an entitlement. With subsidized housing, there is discretion to deny applications. Um, and it's it's not guaranteed that if you qualify. So I've definitely seen folks who, after 20 years, get off the waiting list for some sort of program. So it's not guaranteed, as long as you're eligible, that you're going to get it. And again, it's a very limited stock. That's the other problem. So these these waiting lists only open up maybe every couple of decades. Yeah. Did, wait, did I accurately <laughs> so hear you say somebody came off the waiting list after 20 years? Yeah. So they qualified for it. They were like poor enough that they needed government support and they got on the list. But for 20 years, they were required to find housing at market rate and then have an opportunity, but also be subject to a credit check. Exactly. Yes. But by definition, they probably have bad credit because they're poor and we've not been giving them help with housing for 20 years. Exactly. And in 20 years, you can just imagine, right, what kind of debt someone can get into. So it is really this this very banana system where at one point, yes, you are you're poor enough to qualify for this housing. But because of your poverty and what you have to do to survive, you don't qualify for the housing anymore. And because we haven't been helping you for 20 years and you've been out there kind of doing whatever you can to to not be unhoused. Right. Well, let me ask this question. If somebody's in subsidized housing and they have an eviction, can they just move? Like, can can somebody who's in a public housing project just move to a different project if they have like a dispute with the, the property manager? No. And, and this is what's really difficult. And the other thing is, let's say you are evicted for non-payment or whatever, you get banned from all subsidized housing programs at that point. It can be an indefinite ban or it's still a ban for 10 years. So, you know, what do you do at that point? You can't just replace your housing. You can't just go to another program. And this is not just, oh, this is just in your city or in your state. If you travel to any other state, you move around and apply to different programs, it follows you because it is part of a federal program. Right, right. I can just remember so many um, clients who they were behind in their rent. They may be subsidized, maybe private, but literally the thing that caused them to be behind was they lived in a community with high gun violence and their child was murdered and they paid for the funeral. And so they were late with rent or their um, parent was dying. So they took two weeks off work to go and be there for the death. And then they missed a month of rent. And then, you know, the entire apple cart was overturned because of that. Exactly. Yes. Death in the family. Um, one thing that we see out here in California is deportation of a family member because that's a loss of income, right? So all it takes, yes, is one unexpected expense, um, an unexpected illness, death of a family member, deportation, anything, right? Like you said, the apple cart is overturned and it, it's chaos. It is chaos. So that might be chaos for the tenant, but In those situations described above, it's not the landlord's fault. I mean, the U.S. housing system, to the extent it functions, it's because landlords can earn money by buying buildings and renting apartments, and they can enforce their right to receive rent in court. So what if the landlord didn't do anything wrong? What if the tenant really didn't pay the rent owed? 
the landlord followed the rules, and now the case is in eviction court. What good can a lawyer do in those circumstances? I asked Lorraine to walk us through a situation like that. I can give you a couple. In one of the offices I worked at, we had a, a really bad domestic violence case. And the case actually came from our family law unit. And they reached out to the housing unit saying, well, now our client's being evicted. Can you help out? And just having an attorney in that eviction process, even with this, right, you just can't pay the rent. You got to go. You can negotiate um, what we started referring to as a soft landing. So get, give her some time to find alternative housing. Because one, this person has just been through a very traumatic experience. And to then be further traumatized by trying to figure out where they're going to go is, is ridiculous. So just getting them that time helps into kind of ease them into the transition of, of one, having escaped the situation, right? And two, then their new economic reality, right? So getting that time really helps stabilize that person. And it also, you know, there's all kinds of things that you can do with that time um, that is really important. The other thing is protecting their credit record, right? Because, yes, they might have been on the lease, but maybe weren't the ones financially responsible for paying the rent. But guess what? Because they were on the lease, they are responsible to the landlord for that rent. So you can also work out a deal where they, you know, you can get the rent waived, um, you can negotiate that the case stays sealed, you know, if you're that in that kind of jurisdiction where they allow that. You can make sure that this never reports and doesn't follow, the, you know, the tenant around as she's trying to reestablish her new life or his new life. This idea of a soft landing is really interesting to me. Making it possible for people to move on when they can't meet the rent, but doing it in a way that doesn't also destroy their lives. It can be good for that innocent landlord to have a tenant's lawyer exploring options, pursuing resources for the tenant, and negotiating a reasonable settlement. A soft landing means that tenant won't have the black mark of an eviction on her record, the landlord won't spend money enforcing an eviction order, and the family won't be forced into a downward spiral of homelessness that so often is the outcome of a sheriff's eviction. A soft landing is a better outcome for the whole community. It becomes a situation where you're kind of trying to explain basic humanity mm -hmm. to these attorneys and why, yes, okay, sure, in the grand scheme of things, if you want to make it black and white, your, your client's not responsible for any of this, right? This is not their problem, right? But this is why it is their problem. And the least they can do in, as part of the greater social contract of being a decent human being in the world is to give my clients some time and, you know, X, Y, Z, whatever else I'm asking for, right? Because there's the other devil's advocate, right? It's like, well, what about mom and pop landlords? These are people who are just, you know, renting to survive and paying off their mortgages. I get that argument. I was like, but that's not, honestly, when I go to court, that's not who I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with large corporate landlords. I'm dealing with landlords who can afford to write off on their taxes because that is available to them, right, a loss, a business loss, because that's what it is. This is a business. And, and I, I and sadly have to remind, you know, a lot of my clients a lot of the time is you're just part of a business, unfortunately. They don't see you as a person. And my job is to try to make them see you as a person, but you're just 
a number and a column to them, right? And it's running at a deficit. And so this is why we're in this situation right now, because a lot of folks do focus on like, why is my landlord so horrible? Why don't they understand, mm-hmm. you know? And it's, well, because it's, this is business. This is not necessarily seeing you as a person. And I actually have an easier time, honestly, with, I'm not going to say all non-pop landlords, but they tend to be a little bit more empathetic and sympathetic to situations. And I, it, it tend to be a little bit more reasonable when you are kind of negotiating these soft landings. Facilitating soft landings, avoiding the black mark of an eviction case, protecting disability rights, preserving a person's home. There is just so much that a pro bono attorney can accomplish for low-income tenants who are having disputes with their landlords. And now, COVID has disrupted incomes and shut down eviction courts for a long time. So many fear there is a coming wave of mass evictions. We need lawyers for low-income tenants now more than ever. In part because there's actually more you can do. There's more innovations. There's more funding streams. More than I've ever seen in my time as a lawyer. But traumatized, frustrated tenants at risk of losing their homes don't necessarily know how to access the new help. Especially right now in the wake of of the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of the tenant protections expiring, there are a lot of discrete projects that are starting to pop up. So things even as discrete as like volunteering for a day to help folks fill out an answer. A discovery is a huge thing now. So even helping with drafting discovery answers, drafting discovery templates, um, we're really making a push to creating more um, pleading banks, which is also something, right, that can be worked on by an associate on their own time to help create those materials that advocates need to, to defend these cases. And also in pre-eviction things, here in L.A., we have a program called Stay House L.A., and they provide um, different workshops, informational sessions, consultations with attorneys. And these are very discrete time commitments where it's maybe an hour and a half where you just kind of talk to somebody or you are make yourself available to help folks fill out emergency rental uh, assistance applications. So there are a lot of things going on right now where they are super helpful, but smaller time commitments that don't necessarily mean dedicating yourself to an entire case. I want to lift up something you said about helping with rental assistance applications. While filling out those applications may seem really easy and straightforward to a lawyer, I think for a lot of tenants and even for landlords, they're just confused or unclear on how to do it well. And so a lawyer spending an hour or two hours making sure that application is correct when it goes in helps both the tenant and the mom and pop landlord to get the relief that is available. Exactly. And especially if you're a pro bono volunteer with different language capacity, that has been incredibly helpful in this process, because I will tell you that many, many jurisdictions will maybe, you know, translate the applications into Spanish, right? And, you know, certain Asian languages, but there are so many languages out there right now that don't, all they see is an English application. So how are they supposed to fill that out? So the opportunities to help, they range from an hour with a rental assistance form to a full jury trial, like the one Lorraine described. And I realize that Lorraine's stories can be inspiring and overwhelming at the same time. She's obviously dedicated her entire career to preserving homes for low-income tenants. If you've never done it before ever, 
even if you realize now is your moment, you have to be asking, how do I get the basic training to represent tenants well? Even if you can volunteer with a local legal aid, it's just hard to walk in feeling completely clueless. You want some basic training to get comfortable and also to see if this really is the right pro bono fit for you. Can you tell me a little bit about the project that you're doing for PLI? Yeah, so PLI puts on a great program for California eviction defense um, pretty much every year now. So it's, it's been, I want to say, kind of a tradition. Um, and it's offered to allow attorneys to get an introduction to eviction practice. But we also have advanced training to help folks who have been doing the work um, kind of expand on their skills. So what it's meant to do is to give you an introduction into what it's like to do the practice of eviction defense. And this year, we're adding uh, mobile home protections. Um, because that's actually become a, a kind of a big issue here in California is some of the last of the affordable housing stock that we have. The long-term impact of stable, affordable housing can be hard to see sometimes. It forces us to think in terms of decades, to see the positive effect of the midnight moves and the homeless shelter stays that did not happen. But I think of how grateful I am that my son carries the knowledge that he'll always have safe shelter at our house if he needs it. And I think of how grateful I am that Lorraine had safe shelter in her mom's subsidized apartment, which made it possible for her to join us at Legal Aid, made it possible for her to build this career fighting for other people to have stable housing. Had it not been for the fact that my mom was able to stay in the housing and, and be stably housed, yeah, I went, there's no way I would have been able to volunteer. I would have had to really hustle to find something to pay me because I wouldn't have had any resources. And again, it's an apartment. It's meant to be temporary, but that was my home. And I had a family home to return to so I could engage in this yeah. work. And that's really, really important. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our producer, Daniel Pinitz, as well as our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono. <laughs>